we've declared that this whole sermon series in the Gospel of Mark is focusing on one word, and it's the word that we think is Jesus' most misunderstood command, and that's the word follow. But we Americans, we, we people in industrialized nations, we, we tend to focus on verbs a lot, and we end up reducing a lot of things to metrics and technique and process and sequence. And there's, there's a point to that, and we all understand that. But, but I'm wanting to suggest to you today that we, we can't reduce following Jesus to technique. It's not about calisthenics and warming up and you know, hydrating yourself. It's all about this. In order for you to persist in what it means to follow, you have to take stock of who it is that you're following. That if ever you lose sight of Him, you will lose sight of why you're running at all. And so this morning, we're going to listen to just four or five verses that are going to tell us three things, not just about the nature of the call to follow, but far more importantly, the nature of the one who is calling us to follow him. Unless our eye is on him, the technique just won't last. What are we going to learn? Three things about him who calls us. That this is the call of a Lord. That it's the call of a friend. It's also the call of a physician. And we need to grapple with each and every part of that. So I wonder if you might stand as we listen to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Our central text for today is found in Mark 2, 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Last week we heard Jesus make this audacious claim as a bunch of friends bring an invalid into a house and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody thinks he's nuts. And then he heals the man and everybody's like, okay, maybe he's not nuts. And so many more of them start trailing behind him along the seashore. And, and here in our moment, we see Jesus again walking along the sea, teaching them all that he has to say about this kingdom. And then he has this encounter with somebody that nobody liked the kind of person that everybody despised. And it was somebody named Levi, and it says he sat at the tax booth, which you might say he's one of those tax collectors. As you kind of think about tax collectors, he's more like a customs agent. This is happening in Capernaum, which is on the border of two regions. And, you know, you ever go into a foreign country and you got goods, sometimes you got to pay a tax on them, a duty on them. Well, if you're sitting at the tax booth, you're the, there, you're the dude there that's to collect the duties from the fishermen who are bringing their haul across the border. they got to pay a duty on what they're going to sell inside your land. And that's what Levi is up to do. But for Levi to hold that position... There are things that are true about him that anybody that's going to come and pay their tax to him are gritting their teeth while they do. 
Because this guy is working for Rome. He is working for an occupying force. And he is taking money from his own countrymen and most often, more often than not, gouging them for his own personal profit. It's what Zacchaeus does, right? He defrauds his own people in order to pay Rome the highest tax because he gets a kickback. So with all due respect to you, if you work in the tow truck industry or an IRS auditor, you may do your job with great flair and integrity in all things, but I know that very few people have you on their Christmas card list. Well, that was true of Levi in his day. If you're a customs agent, nobody liked you. And for Jesus then to approach him, there's the whole set of assumptions that people thought, oh, watch this. What does Jesus do? Does he spit in his face? No. Does he scorn him for betraying his own people? No. He says, come along. Come with me. And everybody that's watching and listening is going, he probably doesn't know who he's talking to. Come along, Levi, follow me. And the only thing more astonishing is that Levi says, in as many words, I'm in. What did Levi see? What did he detect in Jesus that he was willing to say, okay, I mean, gosh, Mark, man, throw us a bone, dude. Tell us, what does Levi see? What does is, what is Andrew and John and, and, and Peter and Philip, what do they all see that they're just willing to sort of say, I'm in. I don't need to see your resume. I'm just going. We don't know. But we do know that whatever Levi saw in Jesus, one thing was true. He couldn't say no. And I think that's the first thing that we learn about Jesus, whom we have to see if we're ever going to follow him, that this is the call of a Lord. Now, um, I know you and I do not live in a culture in which we use the word Lord very much. It's a throwback to an earlier day. It is one of my great regrets in life that I did not train my children at an early age to address me as Lord. <laughs> my Lord, may I have another cookie? It just didn't take. I missed another missed opportunity with parenting. But when it comes to thinking about Lord and Lordship, I think there's, there's two senses in which we see the nature of this call and of one who is Lord, and it's, it's this paradox. If you don't like paradoxes, you're in the wrong faith. You're actually on the wrong planet. But there's a paradox here when it comes to his lordship. There's an uncondition, unconditional form of that lordship and a very conditional form of that lordship. What is the unconditional sense? Jesus couldn't care less who Levi is, what he has done, and how people thought of him. He doesn't care about Levi's past. He doesn't even care about Levi's present. He is more concerned for Levi's future. Full stop. No prerequisites. I don't care how you see yourself. I don't care how they see you. I just know how I see you. And I would like you to come and follow me. There are no prerequisites for your respectability. There are no prerequisites as to your moral fiber. I will not bat an eye at how other people see you. I just want you to come and follow me. And he does. That is the unconditional call of a Lord. 
And that's how he sees you. He doesn't care about your past. He doesn't care about your present. He's just concerned about your future. That is the unconditional nature of his call if he's the Lord. But there's also a conditional form of it too. Because when he calls Levi to himself, he calls all of Levi to himself. Levi, in order to follow Jesus, would have to not only leave his vocation, but the network that was associated with it, the perks and the privileges that were associated with it, the very settled existence that he has that radiates somewhere around the focus of this life together, this vocation, he's leaving that behind. He's not saying to Jesus, hey man, could I, could I keep this side gig, you know, telecommute twice a week? No, you're done. We're done. You're moving on with me. It all changes. There is not a part of him that could keep any of it back. And therefore, for him to say goodbye to all of that was more than saying goodbye to a job. It was saying goodbye to a life. Everything was up for grabs if you're going to follow Jesus. It's a very conditional call in that sense. Now, when you and I hear that stuff, the unconditional call and the conditional call, the unconditional call, we love that part. Isn't Jesus so norm-bending and inclusive? Love it. It's the spirit of our age. The conditional part, you can have it back. You mean, I've got to make everything available to you? How I think, how I feel, how I love, how I pay, how I invest, how I sprint, how I talk, how I prioritize, all of that? Um, in a word, yes. All of it. If he is Lord, then there is no part that is off limits to him. Now, as soon as you hear that, as soon as I say that, there's a part of you that thinks, man, that sounds really stifling. That seems really exacting, rather constraining. How about no? I want to be free. And you may think that way, but that's because you interpret that call to give over all of yourself as, as something that is out to, to, to enslave you, to, to make you less than free. But what if I were to suggest to you that in giving all of yourself to Jesus, that that is actually meant to liberate you? That that is meant to give unto you that life that you are actually denying yourself by insisting upon a freedom that is not yours to hold on to. What if there was something that he was out to do in you that would actually be for your good, even though it feels at least at times like a bed of constraints? C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. It's a wonderful image that has stuck with me for a very long time. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The conditional call of the Lord Jesus as the Lord in calling all of you, you, you think he's just out to you know, recruit, recruit conscripts to do his bidding. 
He's actually trying to fashion you into something in which he would be pleased to dwell. And you have to see him in that light if you will ever persist in his call to follow. This is the call of a Lord. Now, as soon as I say that, you will, you will feel maybe these competing feelings. It seems, you know, kind of strangely endearing, uh, but maybe a, little, maybe a little intimidating too. And that's where you get to consider this second thing that we learn about Jesus, the second aspect of who Jesus is in order to see him, in order to keep our eye on him. And that's, that's what we discover in what happens sort of in the middle part of the passage. Levi says, I'm in. And what happens in that sort of celebratory moment? It's a shindig. Everybody come over! And who's on the invitation list? A bunch of, uh, a bunch of um, apparently a lot of Levi's work buddies and a lot of other baddies. Um, the folks that do not get invited to the party or the folks that you know, are on the outside smoking cigarettes, whatever it was, they're the ones, are, they're, they get invited to the party. Whole crew is there. And Jesus is there. And Mark does something that you might kind of miss if you're not watching really carefully that is out to bring attention to something very particular in Jesus. On, there are two words that Mark repeats, two times each, that is out to bring us something that's very true about Jesus. And it's the words recline and eat. We dig this already, right? Twice you hear him saying, Jesus was reclining with them at table. Remember, in a first century Palestine world, there's no chairs. There's a little table a little bit off the ground. There's a bunch of pillows. You, you kind of lean in and you, know, you talk to each other. You circle like that. There's no chairs. He's reclining at table and he's eating with them. Reclining and eating. To us, that's kind of like, yeah, okay. He's reclining and eating. Great. Another, you know, Mark's just being picturesque. There's nothing of great importance in that. Oh, no. No, no, no. In that moment, to be reclining at table and to be eating with people, that was a great demonstration of respect and of welcome and of affection and of joy. You know, you people invite folks over for a football game and, you know, there's popcorn and there might be chips, but you're there for the game and they show up and, hey, sit down. And then they, you know, game's over, all right, get out, right? Like, that's, that's your stick. That's how we kind of do things hospitality in America a lot, right? You go to a foreign country, you know it's different. They invite you over for dinner. They're like saying to you, come be welcome in my home. When, when I've told you before, I, I spent a semester in Russia, my senior year of college, and I remember this young couple invited me over for, for lunch one day, and I was silly, kind of apprehensive, going, ah, I'm not really sure, and they kind of looked at me like I had just broke wind. Like, what, what are you talking about? We invited you over to our house. And it's kind of like, oh, light bulb goes on. They really want me to come over. And where am I? I'm not America. So I go over, and we eat borscht, and I try to explain them the music from ABBA. It was great. <laughs> well, tell me, what is this dancing queen? Um, but you knew I could pick up in my dense 20-something life. This meant a lot to them. That I was invited into their home, and they were there to treat me kind of like royalty. That's what's going on here. And that's what's freaking everybody out. Jesus, like, you're not even hesitating. You're just enjoying it. These folks are around the table and Jesus is enjoying their company and laughing with them. And here's your SAT word for the day. It is a general mood of conviviality. And these folks that are tax collectors and sinners, boo, tax collectors and sinners. 
These are, not, these are people that are not on trial in Jesus' eyes. He's not making little mental notes in his head. Yeah, I think I want to call these ones, but those, no way. This is not Jesus being a judge at a beauty pageant. It is not a headhunter, an HRI guy, HR guy going through resumes going, yeah, this one will get hired. No one, no chance this one will get hired. It's not what Jesus is doing. He is pleased to be with them. And therefore, yes, it is the call of a Lord, but at the same time, friends, this is the call of a friend. He has not seen if they measure up. He is laughing with them. He is pleased to be around them. And that's something that you and I have to believe about Jesus if you're going to be sustained in his call to follow him. You have to believe that this is a call of a friend. That semester in Russia, I had my opportunity to go through a lot of Orthodox monasteries and cathedrals. I've told you some of those stories before. And if you know anything about Orthodox icons about Jesus, there's one thing that is consistent about all of those icons. Jesus is never smiling. He is always severe looking, but never smiling. And you know what? That's fine. Too easily in our civilization, we just think, Jesus is like this. Jesus is my homeboy, right? There is a reason for him to be severe. You know what he's come to do? It is serious. But with all due respect to my friends in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I wish that sometimes they would make an icon in which Jesus was smiling. There is a place for his severity. There is also a place for his smiling. And the question I would ask to you rhetorically, how do you see him? Is he only severe in your head or is he ever smiling? Is there a very possibility in your soul that he might look upon you with joy and delight like he actually wants to be around you, like he actually marvels that you even exist Is that how you see him? Or do you only see him as severe going, man, boy, do you really need my help? You do. Some people only see him as severe and think that the idea of Jesus ever smiling with you is a bridge too far. And you know who also thought like that? The Pharisees and the scribes. They're baffled, if not scandalized, by the fact that Jesus seems to be having all sorts of cut-up with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who are defrauding their own people. We don't know if they're at the party, but they're close enough, and they kind of, you know, look at the disciples kind of like, you know, your mother might have looked at you if you ever showed up at a party wearing white after Labor Day. (laughs) Do you see who he's talking to? Yeah, it's like Roy Kent. He's always grimacing. The, 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 the Pharisees are looking at the disciples going, huh, um, you know those are disgraceful people, right? And do you, know, do you know that by fraternizing, by mixing with those who are disgraced, that he is bringing disgrace upon himself? I mean, they don't even have the courage to say Jesus himself. They just talk to his disciples. And you and I hear all that, and, and the natural response for us to hear that part of the story is to do... Uh, it's very typical. We, 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 we listen to the Pharisees and the scribes and we know that they're kind of a foil in most of these stories that the gospel writers tell. At this point, we're all reflexively encouraged to go, boo, down with the Pharisees, cancel them, deplatform them, send them packing. But wait a minute. Do me a favor. Steel man the Pharisees for just a second. It's the new spiritual discipline. You've got to steel man the people you disagree with. You've got to. 
Because there's a couple ways in which what the Pharisees and the scribes believe and what Jesus believes are in lockstep. There's two ways in which they could not be more in agreement with each other. And it's, the first is this. God is holy. God is righteous. And in him is life untainted. And the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus are just like nodding their head. Yes. I mean, what does Jesus say? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, holiness matters to Jesus. Holiness matters to Jesus. That they agree on. And the other, look, if you're in the presence of God, then two things will happen simultaneously. You will feel like Peter when, when Peter first encounters Jesus and he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And at the same time, you kind of want to be like Melvin in As Good As It Gets when he finally looks at Helen Hutton and he says, you make me want to be a better man. God is holy. God is righteous. And in him is life untainted. On that count, they're in agreement. And on another count, they're also in agreement. Influence is a real thing. You can be misled. You can be influenced by people that will take you down a dark path. You know who agrees? Jesus does. And you know who else agrees? Paul does. I quoted Malcolm Geit, a poet at the beginning of our service. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, quotes a poet of his day, a a poet by the name of Menander, who in some line in one of his sonnets says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. On both of those counts, Jesus and the Pharisees are kind of like, yep, sign me up. I don't vote straight ticket. There are some issues that I'm a one-issue voter on them. And they get it. Jesus is a friend to sinners, but he doesn't dispense with the category of sin. And it's how the Pharisees and the scribes respond to Jesus in that moment where they both converge and where they both diverge that helps us get us to the last aspect of what it means to grapple with who Jesus is. He is a Lord and he brings to us a call of unconditional and conditional lordship. He is a friend who rejoices in your very being and would be glad to sit and have a meal with you. But he is one other thing and it's really the punchline of the whole passage and it's in verse 17 and it goes like this. Wait for it. I don't have it. Let's see if I have it from memory. Those who are sick have no need. Those who are well have no need of a physician but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners. And that's one of those verses where you go, hmm, yeah, that's deep. What does he mean? It's a paradox. Because in that moment, I think that there are parts of the Pharisees and the scribes that would go, yep. And there are other parts that would go, what are you talking about? Jesus agrees with with the Pharisees and scribes. Righteousness and holiness are real things. Sin is a real category. He does not call righteousness sin. He doesn't call sin righteousness. But here's where the Pharisees miss him on two big counts. One, they do not get what Jesus is about. They, they've been sitting around Jesus long enough, they've been listening to what Jesus is talking about, and they, they come to the conclusion that Jesus has come, whoever he is, whatever he claims to be doing, he has come to pin medals and pat on the back all the good boys and girls and kick to the curb all you wicked folk. 
get. You're in my way. They think he has come to do that. And Jesus is there to say, wait a minute. I'm a physician. What doctor would turn away people who are sick and who know that they are sick? Not a doctor worth his weight in salt. He has not come to declare those who are good and those who are bad. He has come to act like a physician does, to diagnose and to prescribe, to test and to treat, and both in a way and to a degree that no one ever has. They don't get why he's come. They don't get who he is. And the other thing they don't get, they don't get themselves. He is, in as many words, saying to the Pharisees, Pharisees, look, you think these folks that I'm meeting with, you think that they're sick. You think that they're sin sick. And you know what? I think they don't disagree with you. I think they agree with you. But the problem is, you think you're well. And the reason I think you're sick and that you mistakenly think that you're well is that the only thing that you have for these tax collectors and sinners, the only posture you have for them is suspicion and derision. You don't have any curiosity about what brought them to this moment and you certainly don't have any compassion for what plight they find themselves in. We have just done your own spiritual EKG and there is a blockage. You think you're well, you don't know you're sick. And here's the thing, Pharisees, look. I've come to eat with them and they know they're sick. But what happens when I've come to eat with you? Because you and I, if you know Jesus well enough, there are plenty of moments in which he comes to a party at a Pharisee's house, reclining a table and eating with Pharisees. Now what might that mean? When the doctor shows up in your room, it's not because he wants to tell you a joke. He's got news for you. When Jesus shows up in your house to have food, it's more than a meal, even though it is a meal. It's there to say, you have no idea how much you need me. And the difference between the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, they're both sick. It's just that the Pharisees and the scribes don't know that they're not well. What do they not get? What are they sick with? Well, sin would not be an inaccurate statement. But what is that? Sick how? If you put sin under a microscope to speak in a certain way, you will find in that slide two congenital chronic conditions that a, a guy named Daniel Strange in a book that read, he just released recently called Magnetic Faith, he kind of boils down sin to two chronic conditions that are congenital in nature that are kind of two sides of the same coin and the big words are suppression and substitution we suppress the knowledge of god like paul says in romans 1 and then we find all sorts of substitutes for god that's our idolatry to put it in layman's terms you think you're god and then you will make any other number of things as if they were gods you suppress the truth that you are not god and then you come up with all sorts of number of substitutes to become your God. That's your sin under a microscope. For Levi, what did Levi do to prove of his congenital chronic condition? 
He was willing to defraud his own people and in doing so disregard the call of God upon his own integrity. That's suppressing the truth of God's truth. And then he elevated his own well-being over the well-being of his countrymen. That's an idolatry. It's a chronic congenital condition. That's Levi's issue. That's the Pharisees and the scribes' issue. What about you? What about me? Kids, life is full of disappointments. And you've already had some. And you'll have some soon again. It's just doing that. But sometimes the next time you're disappointed, I want you to just sort of monitor yourself as much as you can remember me saying this in real time. Because you can be disappointed about something and then you can be so devastated about that thing that you either want to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else because you're so devastated. Because you that thing, that thing, thought that that thing was everything. Friends, kids, it's true for your parents, it's true for every adult in this room, and it's true for you. In a moment like that, you know what you've just done? You've just come to believe that you are your own God and that thing that you wanted but cannot have is your new God. That's what we're sick with. We forget that we belong to him. We think we belong to ourselves. And we make all sorts of things as if we could just have that. Everything would be fine. That's our sickness. We are all like Andrew. Not Andrew Kruhulis, but Andrew in the breakfast club. Six kids show up for detention on some Saturday from vastly different backgrounds. And there at the early part, Emilio Estevez plays Andrew. He's a wrestler. He gets busted for having mistreated another kid. And his dad rides him rides him. Why? Because if he keeps messing around, he's going to blow his ride to get a wrestling scholarship. And to him, everything, everything is dependent upon him getting that wrestling scholarship. And in his world, there is no God. I don't belong to anybody but myself. And the only thing that matters is winning, winning. And it leads him to do the most atrocious thing to a fellow student. Maybe that's not your story, but you have that story in miniature. We're all like Andrew. We live as if there is no God, and we turn something into a God that is no God. We're all like Andrew. We're all like Gollum. We've all got this thing that we think will allow us to rule and be accountable to no one and hide everything from each other. It's called a ring, and then we will do everything to keep it. We call it our precious, and we'll go to great lengths to keep that it's our own. We're all Andrew. We're all Gollum. And to bring it out of that wildly wonderful cinematic universe, let me just borrow a line that I heard from Brene Brown this week. She said this, when perfectionism is driving us, shame is always riding shotgun and fear is the backseat driver. It's there. There are things that we make that are so important to us that are driven by this sense that if I don't, then I am nothing. And unfortunately, there are many voices in our world right now that will say unto you this, don't let anybody tell you who you are. You just be you. You do you. And Jesus raises a courteous hand and says, I would like to tell you who you are. And I would like to tell you who you are by showing you what I will do for you, what you both needed from me and what I was glad to give you. 
It feels like a, an ice age ago, but it was only seven years ago that we were thinking about another virus, and it was called Ebola, and its r naught and CFR rate was off the chart. And there was a doctor serving in Liberia. His name was Keith Brantley, and he got Ebola. He didn't seek it out, but in treating others with it, he got it himself. And though he didn't ask for that, that was part of the territory. He survived and lived to tell the story, but he was glad to do what he did, even though it put him at risk to himself. Friends, that little story is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He comes to us, and he comes to our part of the territory, and he takes upon that which is killing us, takes it upon himself, that he might heal what is killing us from the inside. That is his story, and that is what a really good physician will really do put himself in harm's way to heal that which is killing us on the inside and will kill us forever. And that is why he is a good physician. And that is why Martin Luther, on this day, over 500 years ago, writing his 95 theses and allegedly nailing it to a door in Wittenberg, Germany, number 62, he wrote this, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. No physician says unto you, get well yourself. Any physician says, let me show you. Let me offer you what I have that you might be healed. That's the grace of God to you in Jesus. And that is the third picture of him that you, must, you and I must hold dear to us if we're to follow in his footsteps for as long as we live. That is who he is. And the more we keep our eye on him, the more likely we will find the spirit and the strength to run behind him. It is not about technique, but it is about keeping our eye on him and who he is and who he is for you. Let's pray. You know we are frail. You know we are dust. You know we love to make some things, even good things, into most important things. And you have come to rescue us from ourselves, from the world, from the wiles of the devil, and from judgment. And we would ask on this day that you would help us to believe, if only just a little more, that you would help us to find strength, that you are in fact our Lord, who is a friend, and in so doing, acts like a good doctor would to give all that he has to bring healing to those who know they are sick. Father, if there are those who are here that are only beginning to entertain the possibility that they are, I pray that you would draw them unto yourself and then they might find by your spirit the desire to run behind you. We give you thanks for the day, for this word, and for the glory and grace of God and the gospel. Amen. Make it a point to find somebody you'll know and share some of your first words with them. Welcome, including those who are part of this communion as of today, and go with this word of benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. Go in his peace.